Hey everyone, wherever you are, as you're watching this video, um, sorry we have to be apart this week. Um, I, I think that we'll be good to go next week. It sounds like everybody who was in contact with anybody else who had the exposure to coronavirus uh, has tested negative. Uh, everybody that I've heard of who has um, gotten tested has tested negative. Stephen and Elizabeth themselves have tested negative twice this week. so. Um, they are champs for uh, doing that testing. I still think they're in my parents' basement for the time being. Um, but praise the Lord that uh, this thing was so far contained among us. Continue to pray for our uh, health and protection uh, in this time. But I do think um, I'm going to still wait for a few days and uh, see how things go. But I do think by next weekend we should be uh, good to meet outside again. Uh, at the camp, but I will I will let everybody know as soon as I know anything, as soon as there's a, a final decision. Um, so we were in uh, the readings this week covered 1 Kings 8 through 14, I believe. Let me look at my, yeah. Uh, 1 Kings 8 through 14. And uh, this really gets from the uh, dedication of the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, all the way to the uh, the split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and, and the, the division of the kingdom. So we end in sort of a bad place. What I want to do tonight is look at um, some, of the, uh, some of the events in the, in the very beginning of 1 Kings. I think those are important to note. Um, I want to look at Solomon's life and why he's important. And then I want to look at the, uh, the part where the, uh, the two prophets uh, have that weird interchange um, because there's some interesting things there that I noticed this week. Um, so let's pray, and then I want to, uh, to dive in. Father, thank you for uh, keeping us safe. Lord, we want to continue to pray for health and uh, protection. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you would nourish us with your word tonight, that it would be life and health and peace to us uh, as your church. We say that we are gathered together um, to, to study your word uh, in the name of your son, Jesus, and because of uh, his life and his death, his resurrection. So we ask for your Holy Spirit on this time. Uh, open our hearts, open the word to us, and uh, draw us close to yourself. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your grace and your mercy. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in the beginning of First Kings, there's an interesting story. Uh, just like David's uh, succession of the throne after Saul, the transfer of power is not so peaceful. And uh, Adonijah uh, decides that he's going to take the throne, and uh, he apparently thinks it's his birthright. He was, I believe, Absalom's younger brother and uh, next in line for the throne. Uh, David had already declared that Solomon was to be his successor, and so he sets himself up as king. His name means um, Yahweh is Lord, uh, which is an ironic name. Uh, Adonijah, uh, Yahweh is Lord, sets himself up as Lord. And one of the things I think is really interesting about this story, and one of the takeaways, just there, there's a lot of really neat stuff in here, but one of the, the key takeaways that, that I wanted to underline for us is... Uh, the concept that we get in this story of lordship. Uh, we proclaim Jesus as our Lord and Master. We say that he is on the throne. 
And what this story gives us is uh, a profound look at the implications of realizing that someone other than yourself is on the throne. All right, so Adonijah gets together his friends. By the way, it says that David had never, in, in David's typical passive way toward the end of his life, um, it says in verse 6, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He had a, a, a permissive father in David. David never reined him in and said, quit doing that. And so he kind of lets his mind go wild to the, to the point where he believes that he is the next king, all right? And so he takes the throne. He's also a very handsome man. He was related to Absalom, who was also very handsome. Apparently, this was a, a very attractive family. Um, he was born next after Absalom, and he gets Joab on his side, Abiathar the priest, and... Um, they basically become, and this is David's old guard, they become sort of his political advisors and try to help him take the throne. Um, it's very interesting in verse 9, it says, He sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone. Um, I didn't notice that, but this is, he really does operate with a demonic uh and what I mean by that is, is in, the, in the method of Satan, right? He's, he uh, slithers his way into power and is manipulating things so that he can end up on the throne. And it says that he makes sacrifices at the serpent stone. I don't think that detail is um, superfluous. Which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. The new guard, the new <clears throat> administration, he leaves them out. All right, so they have a party. Nathan and Bathsheba go and, and um, convince David to take action. He's just laying there, he, he's in his bed. Um, finally, he takes action and, and underscores the fact that no, it, it is indeed Solomon who is to uh, be next in line for the throne. And <clears throat> it says this when, so uh, I'll just pick up the story. Chapter 1, 38. Uh, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Now, this is a foreshadow of Jesus' triumphant entry on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. They heard the, the shouting and the trumpet and the noise indicating that. Um, there's another party going on, all right? And I love, I love the detail here because you get the scene where Adonijah is feasting with his friends, with his people that he's conspired with to take the throne, and they're doing their thing. They think everything's uh, fine and dandy, and then you hear this noise. And it's a celebration. It's a horn. And you look out, 
and it says, um, when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came in. And Adonijah said, you are a worthy man and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, no, I don't have good news for you. Our King David has made Solomon king. And so there's this, there's this noise, and um, I was reading a, a commentary that calls this noise eschatological, is the noise of eschatological doom. The trumpet has sounded, and the declaration has gone out. Solomon is the king, and all the party becomes frightened. And it's a foretelling of that day when the trumpet will sound, and everybody will know, every, every eye, every ear will see Christ coming and know that he is the king. The trumpet will sound, and all of the little parties that we have going on down here in celebration of our own lordship, of our own authority over our lives, of our own pleasure, those are going to stop. And the king's going to appear, and, and uh, the one that the father has declared king will arrive, and everybody will know who really is on the throne. And so this story is awesome in that someone who set themselves up on the throne um, gets totally dethroned by the one that the true king declares as his next in line. And I think it's just a great picture of... So, well, let me keep reading the, the results of this. Then all, verse 49, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and took hold of the horns of the altar. All right? Once he realized that his plan had failed, that he in fact was not on the throne and that someone else was, what does that mean for him? He is now a traitor. He now deserves death uh, because of the way that he has uh, oriented his life and the kingdom around himself. Now just think about that. Think about the moment that um, you realized that Jesus was, as we say, your Lord and Savior. The moment you were saved, did you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I confess. Did that happen to you when you confessed Jesus as Lord? Did you fear and realize that now, because of the way that you have lived your life up until now, you have been a traitor? That you have been arranging the kingdom around you and your own group of approving friends uh, who, who want to help you achieve your uh, lordship of your own life, did you realize that, that that was treason? And did you go and grab horns at the altar? This is a picture of true repentance in the face of the declaration that you are not Lord, someone else is. And uh, this is certainly an example of what should happen in our hearts at the very least when we truly proclaim Jesus as our Lord we should go and grab horns of the altar <laughs> and, and, and plead for our lives. Um, Solomon does have mercy on Adonijah. Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. Now, do, and, and that's a, the other key word here, fear. When we say that someone fears the Lord, it means that they acknowledge him as Lord and themselves as not Lord. Let King Solomon swear to me that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, 
Not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. So Solomon has mercy on him uh, because of his, of his true repentance. He was on the throne. He thought himself king. He, in fact, was not king. He went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now, Joab does not meet such a merciful end. Um, Solomon, really, in, uh, out of respect for his father, uh, has Joab uh, put to death. Even in the, even in the in the temple. All right. So that's kind of the first. Maybe there's maybe there's a few mini sermons that we're doing here tonight. That's the first mini sermon here. Adonijah, um, and his his repentance and his realization when the trumpet sounded and the declaration went out. Solomon sits on the royal throne. He was moved to fear and ran and took hold of the horns of the altar and pled for mercy. He pled for his life. Um, do we do that? And, and have we done that in our, uh, in our confession that Jesus is Lord? When the gospel came to us, the proclamation that Jesus sits on the throne, uh, did we excuse ourselves from the little party that we had going on and go grab hold of the horns of the altar? All right, amen. That's, that's the first uh, mini-sermon here. All right, the second, the second thing I want to look at is Solomon, all right? And we could spend a lot of time on this, uh, but I'm going to keep it brief. I don't, I don't like watching um, hours-long videos on this stuff. Um, but this is just to kind of prime your, prime your thinking and uh, kind of equip you to read this a little more deeply. Um, so Solomon was at the helm of Israel's, um, of, of the nation of Israel during its most prosperous and glorious time, all right? And so Solomon, this, this is a major, as I've said, this whole transition to the monarchy, to the kingdom, marks a major chapter break in the story of the purposes of God. And so as, as we're going through, um, I want you to keep in mind Three, three levels um, to the story, all right? Now, a lot of times I will preach on the lowest level, which is God dealing with an individual, right? God deals with David. God deals with Solomon. God interacts with Elijah and Elisha, and he has his own relationship, and they have their life, and they have specific things that God has asked them to do. And so we see the story unfold of an individual in their relationship with God, right? Um, that would be the first level and, and the most uh, basic level. But the second level, and there's, there's three, the second level is God's relationship with Israel in general. And this started all the way back with the promise of Abraham, all right? So as we're reading through the story, always keep in mind, what does this mean in light of that, that second layer of the story, God's relationship with Abraham and his descendants. Where are we in that? All right? And you'll actually see Abraham mentioned a couple of times through here, um, or God's covenant with Abraham, God's promise to Abraham. You'll certainly see God's promise to David continue to be mentioned all through First and Second Kings. And so what God was doing, the big picture at this second layer, the big picture is God called a man to himself, said, I want to make your family great. And through your family, I want to redeem the world that has gone 
uh, that has gone uh, astray. All right? That's the basic story. God taking a man, making his family great. That's the family of Abraham. It becomes the nation of Israel. At this point, it's a kingdom, and it's really a world power uh, under the reign of Solomon. But God is doing something with the nation of Israel. His purpose was always to bless them and make them great and bless the world through them. All right? And that brings us to the third layer. This is God's purposes, not just with the people of Israel, but with all of mankind. All the way back in Genesis, God made man in his image and said, you steward the earth, take dominion, be fruitful, multiply, um, reflect and reproduce my image and my glory in the earth and relate to me in how you do it, follow my instructions, obey my commands, and as you do that, the whole earth will grow and be fruitful. Okay, so that was God's original purpose. He wanted to dwell with mankind uh, in the garden, and that was to grow and expand and be fruitful and multiply. And mankind had a responsibility to take dominion over the earth and steward it and cultivate Excuse me. And so God is still after that, right? Adam rebelled, and there were a couple other attempts for God to re-engage with all of mankind. After the flood, he said, Noah, I'm starting over with you. It didn't happen. And then there was the Tower of Babel where he scattered all the nations of the earth. It's after he scatters all the nations of the earth that he just picks one family, one nationality, and says, I'm going to deal with you to affect the whole. Okay, so there's three layers. God has relationships with individuals. God has relationship with the people of Israel. But God has always had relationship with all of the nations, all of mankind. And so the reason that's important is when we come to Solomon, we're going to see those three layers really... Um, come to a head in, in, in one person. Okay, you have God's dealing with the person of Solomon, right? You have the, the couple of times that he appears to Solomon, the first in chapter 3 when he asks for wisdom. The other one is in chapter 9 when he kind of reiterates his promise to David and says, if you walk in, if, if your heart is toward me like David's heart was toward me and you walk in my ways, just like I told David, you're never going to lack a man on the throne. Uh, your, your, your throne's going to continue forever. So God deals with, with Solomon on a personal level. Uh, Solomon ends up not fulfilling his end of, the, of that covenant, and we see the effects of that. But then, in terms of that second level, God dealing with the nation of Israel, what's going on here? They've, they've been take, brought, in, brought out of Egypt. They've been placed in the land. They've had some uh, kind of growing pains and birth pains in how to set up their government. Now they've settled on a monarchy. God's fully invested in that. And now we're beginning to see the nation really come to maturity. And as that happens, you start to see Solomon's relationship with other nations. You get to see how Israel isn't just now constantly picked on by the bigger and stronger nations around them they're beginning to have an effect. They're beginning to, I would even say, bless the nations around them. And so in chapter 8, uh, and that, so that brings us to the third level. God has a relationship with all of mankind, 
And it's through his people that he is wanting to bring back all of mankind to himself. It's through his, this nation of Israel. And so God is putting his man on the throne in the nation of Israel, blessing him tremendously and allowing that blessing to go forth out of the nation of Israel to touch the rest of mankind, all right? So here in the story of Solomon, um, we get like little recaps and little echoes of all the things that God has been up to in at all three of those levels um, all at once, okay? Um, we can start with the third level, the highest level, God dealing with mankind, right? Solomon becomes something of a new Adam, all right? Um, Solomon, his name means peace or rest. It's from the same uh, word where we get shalom. Um, Solomon's name is, is taken from the same Hebrew uh, root as shalom. And it, it says a number of times that, that Solomon brought rest and peace to the nation of Israel. Um, but this is what, back in the beginning, God made a place, he put man in the place, he made it rich, he blessed it, um, and the garden was a place that was well watered, it was full of food, it was teeming with life, it was flourishing with natural beauty and natural resources, there was gold there, right? Um, it, all of these things that we begin to see about the nation of Israel at this point, they remind us of Eden, how life was in the Garden of Eden. The temple itself that Solomon builds, a lot of the imagery is, is garden imagery. There's pomegranates, there's trees and leaf work, all right? It all is meant to bring us back to the garden. Um, the other thing is that the whole idea of wisdom, Solomon is, is, is greatly endowed with wisdom. Wisdom, you could say, is basically the ability to take dominion. It's, it's what mankind needed and what God charged mankind to do, wisdom is the ability to do that, okay? Um, wisdom is the ability to steward creation according to the design of the Creator, all right? And so Solomon excels in, in if he excels in anything, he excels in wisdom, all right? And the book of Proverbs, uh, which Solomon wrote, it also points us to this Eden-Adam imagery. All right, let's see, Proverbs chapter three. In trouble. Um, Proverbs chapter three, verse, uh, start in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Remember one of the big things of Genesis, uh, one of the big themes was blessing. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Wisdom, to be a human being in the earth, 
If you walk with wisdom, you will be walking in the way that God originally designed for you to walk. Verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And by knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. God created the world by wisdom. And this is what Solomon understood. That as a wise king, he was participating in the original design of mankind. And he, he understood that opportunity. It was not lost on him. In his Proverbs, you can clearly see that he associates wisdom with that original design in the garden. So he's something of a, of a new Adam. Um, I'm going to read a couple other verses here. Proverbs 8. All of, all of Proverbs 8, um, it, it's this great um, personification of wisdom. Um, but in verse 22, it says, The Lord possessed me, and this is wisdom speaking as a person, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, and when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit. We haven't really seen a reimagining of the creation story uh, in the Old Testament until this, until Solomon writes this in the book of Proverbs. But he goes back, and in his wisdom, he understands this thing called wisdom. This is more than just uh, a quality of life. This is more than just a, a, an attribute. This is the very means by which God brought forth the world. It's the, it's the design that he infused into the world. Wisdom is the ability to be like God in the way that we interact with creation. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the fountains of the earth, then I was beside him. This is wisdom speaking again. I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. All right, so Solomon embodies this global purpose of God that has been there since the beginning. God created mankind so that he could have relationship with mankind as mankind went about the work of taking dominion over the earth. And in, in clinging to God, that was partaking in the tree of life. All right, walking with God and taking dominion Another word for that is wisdom. Okay. Um, one other verse that Solomon wrote is in Ecclesiastes. He wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If I can find Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2. Verse 4. Um, 
So Solomon, this is him recounting his life, okay? Uh, start in verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, for my heart guiding me with wisdom, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. What's he saying? I took dominion. As a man uh, with wisdom, I I began to take took, uh, take dominion over creation itself and to exercise my, uh, my purpose as a man. <clears throat> so, and then I already mentioned the temple, how it, it, its design reflects uh, the garden. Um, Yeah, so if you go through the if you go through the description of the temple, um, if you go through that again and look for garden imagery, Eden imagery, you'll see lots of different examples. Um, okay, so that's the, the the global layer, God dealing with all mankind. Now that the second layer, God dealing with His people, with His nation, uh, really the story that began with Abraham. Solomon embodies that as well. Okay, he is. Um, if, if he was, if anyone could be called blessed in a material way, it's Solomon, all right? And he also becomes a blessing to uh, other nations around him, okay? Um, he has a marriage with Pharaoh's daughter, which in many ways we look down on that. Um, but you can also see that, and, and many of the, the church fathers read this as a uh, a picture of a redeemed bride, of a redeemed Gentile bride. And this is, this is something that um, occurs throughout Scripture, be like Rahab um, and uh, Israel herself after she has been unfaithful. But God's purpose in redeeming his unfaithful bride or a Gentile bride back to himself. Um, Solomon has an alliance with a Gentile designer and builder and uh, manufacturer, really, to uh, build the temple, Hiram of Tyre. So he has a successful alliance with this Gentile in building the very house of God. Um, and then the queen of Sheba comes to, to visit him and is left breathless at this, the level of wealth and wisdom that he displays. So Solomon, in addition to being an Adam, he is, he is an Abraham figure in that he is showing how he is blessed. And he is beginning to be a blessing to the nations around. Um, he's also, in chapter 2, David uh, kind of gives him a send-off. And it reads very much like Moses' commissioning of Joshua. So Solomon is also sort of a, a, of a Joshua figure. So all of these, all of these pictures of, of these different big chapters in the story of Israel, God dealing with the family of Abraham and, and causing his purposes to come forth, to be a blessing to the earth, Solomon begins to touch on all of those. Um, and so, so many strands of, of God's story at this level, at the level of him, him dealing with his people, they begin to come together in Solomon's kingdom. And in fact, 
after, um, if you fast forward, after the exile, after they come back into the land, after being in captivity, in the book of Ezra, it says that those who knew the house, who knew the temple of Solomon in its former glory, they wept when they saw the new temple being built because it was, it was not even close to uh, what it used to be. So Solomon's kingdom was really the, the zenith of up to that point of uh, the people of God. And it became something of a, of a gold standard of, of the golden age past, right? And we kind of have this recurring idea in, uh, in our imaginations of there, there's the golden age is always in the past. For Israel, it was always in the past. It was always back in Solomon's time. That was the golden age past. Um, but in Haggai, after they come back in the, in the, in the book of Haggai, he prophesies that the latter house will be more glory, glorious than the former house. Uh, that, that the people who were coming back and they were weeping at the inferiority of the new temple, Haggai prophesies to them and says, no, there's another house coming. And it's, it is going to be more glorious. We are not bound to always look backwards to the golden age. We can actually look ahead. And there is a golden age ahead of us, and it's actually going to be even more glorious. And so uh, this is why in, in uh, Matthew um, chapter... Tw- I am all messed up here with my notes. In Matthew 12... A few times in the New Testament where Solomon is actually mentioned. Uh, Matthew 12, let's see, verse uh, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given uh, to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus himself looked back and said, yes, we as a nation, we as a a people, he's talking to the Pharisees, we as a people, we look back to that time of Solomon where we were a sovereign nation and we were one of the superpowers. We weren't just kind of cowering under foreign Gentile rule. And we were what God wanted his people to be. And he said, listen, the person you're looking at is greater than Solomon. Something greater than Solomon is here. What could be greater than Solomon? It's the king who understands that it's not through a glorious physical temple that all nations will be brought to the house of the Lord. It's not through adherence to the law in a legalistic sense. And it's not through, um, it's not through the, the, the physical land or the, the geopolitical influence that the people of God have. It is going to be in the person of the Son of God. This is the real Son of David. 
This is him who has come. He has come to take the throne of his father David. He was descended from David according to the flesh. And he has come to reign and show everyone what the kingdom always was supposed to be like and take it to heights that Solomon never even dreamed of. Though not with gold, though not with temple, but with the very presence of God himself. Something that... uh, something that the temple could only point toward, all right? The queen of the south, listen, these these Gentile powers were coming to Solomon and saying, whoa, what's going on here? And he says, something greater than Solomon is here. So what's he saying? That I have come to be what Israel was always meant to be. All right, that brings me to the third. I'm going to try and hurry up here. The third mini-sermon. Chapter 13. So this is after Jeroboam sets up the, uh, the altar in Shechem and um, basically tries to prevent people from going to the actual temple so that their heart wouldn't turn back to God. So he really becomes sort of an Aaron figure. Uh, He builds golden calves and says, hey, up, worship. These are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Um, He sets up feast days that don't align with the the God-given calendar. It says that in the month that he had devised from his own heart, he decided when the festivals were. It was a whole liturgical system that he devised that sort of resembled the, the, uh, the Israelite one, but was really uh, off uh, from his own ideas. It was a self-made religion. And so this man of God from Judah comes to uh, confront Jeroboam, and he prophesies that he prophesies the coming of Josiah, which doesn't happen until the very end of 2 Kings, close to the very end. Josiah comes and makes reforms according to uh, Torah. It ends up being too late. But this prophet comes, Jeroboam tries to make an alliance with him after he realizes that he can't kill him and his hand gets gets, uh, deformed. And then the prophet heals him. But then there's this old prophet in Bethel. All right, you never know either of these prophets' names. All we know is where they're from. And so it seems like these are, um, these are stand-ins for the two... Uh, where this happens in the story, it happens right in 13, which is right when the kingdom is dividing. The rest of the story is going to be about the divided kingdom and the tension between Israel and Judah. You have these two prophets. One's from Judah, one's from Bethel, which would be in Israel, one of the locations that um, he was an old, it, it, it's, it's old Israel, right? Uh, Bethel was an ancient site in the history of Israel, but it was also where Jeroboam had set up one of the golden calves. Um, this old prophet sort of represents Israel, and the man of God from Judah represents Judah, but he doesn't do everything right either. And so this is a symbolic story about um, 
Israel and Judah in the, in the person of these two prophets. Okay? So the old prophet comes and he says, hey, come to my house. And, and the man from Judah says, no, the Lord has told me not to eat or drink anything with anyone. But then the, the old prophet lies to him. Okay, and this is not the first time that we're actually going to be seeing a lot, of, a lot more lying prophets in this story. But this is the first of many. He lies to the prophet. He still has access to God. He's still a genuine prophet because of what happens later in the story. But he lies, and then the man from Judah believes the lie. He believes the lie. And then the Lord comes to the man from Bethel. And he begins to prophesy to the man from Judah and say, you, you disobeyed the word of the Lord and you have not commit, kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. After he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion." which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. The last time we saw someone on a donkey going into the city. It was Solomon to take the throne. This time, it's a prophet of God who's been killed and everybody's mourning his death. They mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests from the high places among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. So what this old prophet from Bethel does, he prophesies and the Lord judges the man from Judah. Uh, but the man from Bethel says, he was my brother. Let me be buried in the grave with him. So what this story is telling us symbolically is that what's ahead for both Judah and Israel is the grave. That there's nothing within the system. Josiah is not going to happen all the way to the end. And when he does bring his reforms, though they are admirable, they're not going to help. What's ahead for Israel and Judah is the grave. And that's the only thing that's ahead. So where do we find hope? God is not abandoning them. And the 
old prophet from Bethel says, lay me in the same grave. Both Israel and Judah, neither of them uh, are successful in being the people that God wanted them to be. The only one who's successful is the one who would come long after them and the one that went into the grave but came back out of the grave. So here we have a picture. It's the first part of the gospel, which is you deserve death. In Kings, we see they deserve death. They deserve death from the very beginning. It's not like it takes them for the whole length of First and Second Kings to finally get to the place where they've done enough bad things to deserve death. No, they deserve death from the very beginning. Jeroboam deserves death from the very beginning. The prophet was right. But the prophet also prophesied that Josiah was going to bring judgment. Josiah doesn't happen for a long, 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 long time. And so this story is a story about the death and resurrection of the people of God. But it's a long, slow death. And it's a death that God is, is moving toward. But in the meantime, he's offering mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy and saying, if you will come back to me, if you will listen to me, I will save you. But ultimately, their hope is not in avoiding death. Their hope is not in avoiding their punishment or getting out of the, uh, having their sentence lessened. Their hope, and this is what God's trying to show them all along, their hope is not, they're way past the point of no return. And they have been all along. They deserve death. Their hope is in the fact that God will, can forgive sins and can resurrect the dead. And this is where the part of the story comes where this longing for the resurrection comes into the story. Um, and so these two prophets, hopefully that makes sense. And if not, it's hard to explain uh, talking to a little black square here. Uh, maybe we can talk more about this in um, home groups and in other settings. Um, but these two prophets really prefigure um, what, what's ahead for Judah and Israel in this story. Judah's going to be right in some ways, but they're going to get drawn astray uh, by Israel, who claims to be speaking on behalf of God. Israel, they deserve the same death as Judah, and they're, going to, they're both going to go down into the same grave. But the hope is that God is a God who raises the dead. And so um, salvation does not come to Israel from a glorious temple, from a restoration movement based on the word of God. Judah's, uh, uh, sorry, Josiah's restoration was great, but it didn't save Israel. They still went into captivity. They still went to the grave of exile. And this was decreed long before, uh, in the purposes of God, it was decreed long before. But what God was up to was preparing his people and preparing the nations uh, for his own son who would come, go into the ground on behalf of the sins of his people, and they, they deserved the death that Jesus died, but then was raised again, and because of that, could then offer forgiveness of sins. And so the covenant of God comes full circle. He did not abandon his people. What, what he revealed about himself all the way back in Exodus remains true, that he is a God full, Yahweh, Yahweh, full of mercy, slow to anger, but who will by no means clear the wicked, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the, to the third and the fourth generation. And so we see here in this book, God, full of mercy, slow to anger, but who will by no means clear the wicked. All right, and so we ask, so how in the world is he going to, at those different levels, how is he going to save the world? How is he going to stick with his people? And these questions come up, and all through we get little glimpses of the gospel, little glimpses of the death and resurrection of Israel uh, in, the, in the person of Jesus. All right, so that's a lot of kind of, um, if you can wrap your mind around that, um, good for you. I don't know if I did a very good job of, of explaining that. But that's what's happening here in, in the story. Um, give me just a second. I'm going I'm to read something for you. <clears throat> um, this is on this little story with the, with the prophets. And so the prophetic power of this chapter stretches beyond Josiah. Many centuries later, another man of God condemns the shrines of Israel as dens of thieves. And another greater Josiah, a scion of the house of David, throws tables and disrupts the worship of the temple as the man of God disrupts Jeroboam's worship. Another prophet, and he's speaking of Jesus, another prophet resists the seductions of dining with demons and holds fast to his father's word. Ironically, the fate of this faithful prophet is the same as the fate of the unfaithful man of God, and he is mauled and exiled to the grave of another man. But this prophet and this Josiah do not remain in the grave any more than Israel and Judah do, for he is Judah who dies for the sake of the harlot Israel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would, as we continue through this story, um, that we would uh, grasp the story as it is, Lord, that we would understand the, uh, the details of it. Uh, but God, keep, uh, keep Jesus and keep the, the gospel of our Lord in view, Lord. Uh, help us to see, uh, as, as Jesus showed himself uh, to those disciples on the Emmaus Road, as he revealed himself in all of the, the Old Testament, all of Scripture, uh, Lord, as we continue through, show us yourself and bring us close to you. Uh, help us to see the, the, um, the fellowship of your suffering and the power of your resurrection uh, in all of these pages, the, the, the truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, in each page. And uh, we thank you for that. Be with us this week, and we thank you for uh, your mercy and your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen.